Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moyolathe McLean, and tonight I'm joined by Mike Bancole. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely delighted to be joining you on the show today, Moy. We're going to have loads of fun. <laughs> I hope so. Well, on tonight's show, we'll be discussing the not-so-fun changes to the energy price cap that have been announced today and how that will affect your bills in the coming winter. We'll also be talking about the car crash campaign launch of the man hoping to take on Donald Trump for Republican presidential nominee. And a disgraced Blairite MP has been given back the Labour whip by Keir Starmer. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. The Tories have got themselves in a real pickle over migration. Since 2010, successive Tory governments have pledged to lower migration to Britain, and the anti-migration messaging really ramped up after Brexit in 2016. And yet, new figures released today by the ONS show that net migration has hit a record high. That's the number of people who immigrated long-term to the UK, minus the number of those who emigrated long-term away from it. And net migration for the 2022 calendar year was 606,000 people. That is a 24% increase on last year. And for those who see high net migration as a positive, this isn't really a cause for concern. But for the Tories, who've been beating the low migration drum for years, this is a disaster. Rishi Sunak went on ITV's This Morning to do damage control. We want to talk about lots of different things. We want to find out more about you. But obviously, there's a bit of business this morning. Um, figures announced at half past nine, the latest immigration mm-hmm. figures. The number we're getting net immigration, 606,000. Uh, lower than expected, Prime Minister, but uh, much higher than promised. Let's be honest. How do you feel about that? Numbers are too high. It's as simple as that. And I want to bring them down. And that's why this week we announced some new measures. And I think pretty much the the biggest thing that anyone's ever announced to bring the levels of migration down. And it's a new policy which limits the amount of family members that people who are studying here can bring with them when they come and study here. And what we've seen over the last few years is that number of dependents has just absolutely spiralled. Almost 150,000 dependents of people who are studying here coming. We're saying from now on, that's not going to be allowed. There's a few other things we're doing as well, but that's going to make a big difference because I want to get the numbers down. Now, people have heard me a lot about uh, talking a lot about illegal migration and stopping the boats. This matters as well, and people should rest assured. Is it out of it. control, do you think, at the moment? Well, no, I think the numbers are just too high. And there's been, look, there's been various factors, and you'll read the report, whether it was welcoming people here from Hong Kong or Ukraine, you know, that's had an impact. As we saw after the pandemic, more people came back to, to study here who hadn't been here during the pandemic years. You know, but fundamentally, the numbers are high. I want to bring them down. The, the measures we announced high, this week are they're more than... controlled, though, right? Uh, Therefore, they're out of control. Let, let's be honest, because promises were made to keep them much lower than this. And it was one of your big manifestos, and it's the thing that they're talking about in supermarkets and in pubs and in cafes. Can you reassure people it's that it's going to come down and continue coming down? Yeah, of course. I, do, I want to bring the numbers down. The measures we've announced this week are more impactful than anything that anyone has ever announced before when it comes to tackling migration. But to your point, Craig, what are people are talking about when I'm out and about in cafes, restaurants, wherever it might be, they do talk to me more about illegal migration. And I'm sure your viewers, you know, when you see things on your TV screens, people coming here illegally on small boats across the channel, I think that really says to people, hang on, that's really not not properly in control when people can break the rules, come here illegally. And that's why I'm working so hard. One of my five priorities, in fact, is to stop the boats. It's really interesting to me how the media has wholesale swallowed the idea that high migration is bad. 
We asked migration policy expert Zoe Gardner what groups make up these new high migration figures. Students are the biggest groups, student, foreign students and their dependents. Um, a lot of those people are coming from India, China, Nigeria uh, and the US. That is about 35 to 40% of the people um, in these numbers. The next biggest group are skilled workers. Skilled workers are coming from a similar range of countries, also from the US, also from India, Bangladesh. Over a third of those are coming to work specifically in health and social care roles. The third big group are people who are coming from Ukraine and Hong Kong on those dedicated visa routes that we have to offer protection to those groups of people. Um, and then there's there's smaller groups of people who are coming to join up with family members. Um, there's asylum seekers who are not offered a visa uh, like we do for Ukrainians and for people from Hong Kong um, who are also included in those figures. So it's, it's a, a diverse group of people. Um, all of whom should be recognized as being people. They um, deserve better than to be treated like a big mass of numbers that we need to somehow get down. They deserve to be recognized as, as individual people who have come here in good faith and are making big contributions to our country. Um, they deserve better than to be treated like a political football, basically. I haven't heard any politicians answer the question as to why we want to bring net immigration down. I don't think it's any problem at all that we have um, lots of people trying to come and, and build their lives in the UK, join our communities, study and work in our communities. Um, I think that's actually a brilliant thing. Um, and I think that it's very disappointing that there aren't any politicians willing to celebrate the people who come here and join our communities. These are people that we work alongside, people that we fall in love with and build families with, people who are valued members of their communities. And I think that it's really shameful, actually, that we're talking about them um, in the terms that we're seeing from across the political spectrum today. They just bring a huge amount of positive, and actually they're just human beings. They're doing what human beings do, which is to move around. They, they, they come to seek opportunity. They come to seek safety. They come to seek all the kind of things that British people take for granted. We should be welcoming that. And I think, actually, most people in this country do welcome that. And um, it's the politicians that need to catch up. They've been left behind. They still think we're in the 70s and 80s and that, you know, divisive uh, racist rhetoric is going to win them votes. So I think they're wrong about that. I think they need to catch up with the British public that's really comfortable with immigration. We don't care where you come from. We just care that our communities get the support they deserve. And, and the problem is, is that the government isn't investing in our communities and isn't investing in our public services. That's what people's concerns are really about. I don't think Anybody needs to be particularly concerned about 600,000 or 500,000 or 700,000 migrants coming in every year. I don't think it makes a very big difference to anybody's life. What makes a difference, um, as I say, is investment in our communities. Of course, the investment in our communities that Zoe points to there is something the Tories have been very much failing to do. But staying on the topic of migration, we should talk about Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick, because this morning he appeared to let a particularly nasty cat out of the bag. Jenrick appeared in the House of Commons instead of Home Secretary Suella Braverman to answer an urgent question about the net migration figures posed by Vet Cooper of Labour. And while he was there, Jenrick was asked why there was a backlog of over 172,000 people waiting for an initial decision on their asylum applications. Here is what Jenrick said to Labour MP Clive Efford. 
can you explain why it is that fewer than 1% of the people who arrived on small boats last year have actually had their asylum claims determined? And why is the figure so low? Well, the, the honourable gentleman has voted against, or his party have voted against, every measure that this government has brought forward to control migration, whether that be legal or, migrate, or, or illegal. So his contention that the Labour Party would get control of uh, migration is, is frankly laughable. I, it is important that we bring the backlog of cases down. That's why the Prime Minister, Home Secretary and I have set out a very clear plan to do that. Uh, we're seeing the dividends of that and we expect the legacy backlog to be cleared over the course of the year as we promised. It is not correct, however, to suggest that if you can process illegal migrants' claims faster, that that will reduce the number of people coming into the country. In all likelihood, it will lead to an increase. Now, this is very telling. Rishi Sunak has pledged to clear the asylum claim backlog by the end of 2023, although his methods aren't exactly welcoming. But here is his immigration minister apparently declaring that clearing the backlog is anti-ethical to the government's aims of lower migration because, genius brain, it will attract more asylum seekers. Sure. But Jenrick did not stop there. He was challenged by Labour's Karen Buck on that assertion. And at first, he parroted Sunak's promise to clear the backlog. But Jenrick couldn't help himself from doubling down. The minister has suggested that uh, <laughs> reducing the backlog, which is a government objective, won't make any difference. Can you tell us whether he does want to reduce the backlog, whether he thinks that reducing the backlog won't make any difference, and on what basis he is now making that assessment? Well, I've been very clear that we want to reduce the backlog. That's part of our 10-point plan to tackle illegal migration. We've put in place a series of measures to reduce bureaucracy, to streamline the process, to double the number of asylum uh, decision makers and those... Uh, investments are already paying dividends. Uh, there is, uh, we're confident that the legacy backlog will be cleared over the course of the year. The point that I was making, I'm happy to, to reiterate, uh, is that the faster the process, the more pull factor there is to the United Kingdom. That isn't a reason to maintain an inefficient process. But what we do need to have is a process where deterrence is suffused through every element, or else we will never break the business model of the people smugglers. Karen Buck's face when Robert Jenrick says a process where deterrent is suffused through every, every element is exactly what mine looked like, because that sounds awfully like the immigration minister is articulating a reason why he thinks an inefficient system should be maintained. A system that means people can't work, build lives, or find a permanent place to live until they have been processed through it. Jenrick was asked one final time what his official line on the backlog was by Andy Slaughter. I think the minister needs to get his story straight on the asylum backlog. Is he saying that uh, that he wants to get it down, in which case he's not doing a very good job because it's up to 172,000? Or is he saying he's keeping it high with all the attendant costs and misery of that in order to deter fresh claims? I've been very clear that we want to get the backlog in cases down. But what I've also pointed out is that Labour's only policy with respect to illegal migration is to clear the backlog faster. Open borders, faster processing. That's not going to work. Well, unequivocal, really. Mike, 
What do you think government policy is? Are they trying to clear the backlog or do they deliberately want to keep it high? I think they deliberately want to keep it high. And I think this government is intent on creating a cruel asylum system. The asylum system is broken by design, partly because this government think it's a vote winner. So they think it's a vote winner to dehumanise migrants, to dehumanise asylum seekers, to dehumanise refugees. This is by design by this government, whether it's the prison ships or the Rwanda policies, this government will stop at nothing to, to make conditions for migrants and conditions for those seeking to make their lives better by coming over to the UK as difficult as possible. So I think they want to keep the numbers high partly because, as Jemrick says, he believes it will be a deterrent for others to come over here. So this government is just intent on being as cruel as possible. And look, this is a continuation of what we've seen for the Conservatives for the last 13 years, whether it's the hostile environment under the trees in May and the Windrush scandal, or it's the Rwanda policy and what's going on now with the backlogs. It's all about being as cruel as possible. So making the system inefficient is actually by design to make things as difficult for asylum seekers as, as possible. Do you think, in your opinion, that it is a vote winner? I don't think it is a vote winner. And I think the government and the Labour Party are missing, you know, where the public are on this issue. The public actually, when you look at the numbers in terms of a lot of the surveys and, and the polling numbers, are quite supportive of, of migrants and don't want them to be dehumanised. So I think what's actually happening is Labour and the Conservative Party, when they try to outflank one another on who can be tough, the toughest on migration, are actually appealing to a shrinking base of the electorate. The electorates more broadly actually want to welcome migrants and want migrants to be treated with dignity and respect. So the, the, the quicker both major parties in this country realise that, the better. Let's move on to our next story, which I think a lot more of the British public will be concerned with, because Britain's energy regulator, Ofgem, has announced a new energy cap and it's going down. But, and it is a big but, it's not going to make a massive difference to your bills. Until now, the government has limited energy bills for a typical household to £2,500 per year through their energy price guarantee. But now, Ofgem has cut the maximum that a typical household will pay to £2,074 a year. That is a 17% drop from the level of the energy price guarantee, meaning that for every £100 you pay on your electricity now, you'll pay just £83 from July when the change comes into effect. That's good news, right? But energy prices still have a way to go. If you look at this graph from The Telegraph, you'll see that the energy price guarantee capped prices at £2,500 from October last year until now. From July, the price guarantee goes up to £3,000, meaning customers will pay whichever of the guarantee or the price cap is lower. Ofgem's latest announcement means that the price cap, again, £2,074, is what the average household will now pay. This means that the price cap is now where it was in April last year, but it's still 80% higher than it was in August 2021. Now, that is just the price cap. But how will your bills next winter, which is what we care about, compare to your bills last winter? Well, here is where it gets tricky. That's because over the last winter, besides the energy price guarantee, the government also subsidised household energy bills via the £400 energy bills support scheme. That meant that people had around £66 per month knocked off their household bills over the winter. Wow, big spender. That won't be in place next winter. Here is money-saving expert Martin Lewis explaining what that means for you. We have predictions from October and into January. 
This is the drop we've had here. This is a predicted drop. It's not quite as much as that. But we're expecting to see prices in October, and this is somewhat crystal ball gazing because we don't know, drop a little bit from July, but then go up to roughly the same price from January till next March, and that's as far as it goes. Now, you're asking winter to winter. Well, the rate will be cheaper, but last winter, you had the £66 a month off everyone's bills. Now, for the vast majority of people, apart from very high users, a 17% drop will not be £66 a month. So you will be paying more, if these predictions are right, and it's somewhat crystal ball gazing, you'll be paying more next winter than you did last winter, unless you're a very high user. You heard that right. You'll actually pay more for your energy next winter than you did last winter, unless the government intervenes again. Now the change to the cap only affects part of your energy bill that's based on wholesale energy prices. There are other components like the standing charge, which is a fee you pay every day no matter how much energy you use. When it goes up, it hits low-income households the hardest because it eats up a larger proportion of their income than it does higher-income households. And they went up a lot last year. On Good Morning Britain, Martin Lewis raised this issue with Ofgem CEO Jonathan Brearley. The biggest single complaint I get about energy bills and the standing charge, the very high standing charge, isn't dropping. You're doing the cut by the unit rate. Let me read Will for you. My standing charge for electricity went from 25p a day to 47p a day last year. What is the justification for that? And when can we expect it to fall back? A lot of anger over that. Why haven't you dropped it? Well, what the standing charge pays for is two things, really. Well, overall, it's a fixed cost in the system. That's partly the cost of our networks, particularly our electricity networks, but it's also the operating costs of the companies themselves. Now, what we're saying today is we are opening up a conversation about half of that cost, that operating cost, which is about £150 out of the roughly sort of £300 standing charge a year. And we're going to be asking two questions. You know, is that the right set at the right level, but also should we move that from the standing charge to the volume charge? And that's a way we can begin to have that debate. But this is not simple. You'll know, Martin, that last year we looked at another element of the standing charge and we asked the same question. We said, well, should we simply put this onto unit rates? The problem is always when you do that, there are many, many poor families who have high energy needs, partly because their children may have special needs or partly because they have disabilities. And they are made much worse off by such a change. So we are going to look at it. We are going to ask ourselves a question and ask publicly for views on that. But just to flag, there is no easy answer here. If you move costs from one part of the bill to the other, there are yes, there are winners, but there are also people that lose out. Another component of your bill is, of course, profit for the energy companies. How much they can make is also capped by Ofgem, but the regulator now wants to let them make more. Okay, here's Martin Lewis again. Currently, you factor in energy firms are allowed to make 1.9% profit. And I think people will be staggered to hear that you're consulting on increasing the amount of profit that energy firms are allowed to make. And that's not the best timing, is it? Well, the reason we're doing that is that, well, there are three things we need to do this winter just to start. One is fair pricing regulation, but the second is making sure that the sector is financially resilient. So you'll remember everything we went through in the end of 2021, and that put around £80 on people's bills when 30 companies failed. And what we're saying to every company is you need to have money in the bank. You need to have good risk management and you need to have money in the bank so you can last through the sorts of price shocks we've seen over the last two years. Now, they need to get that money from somewhere. So we are saying we're 
putting in place roughly an increase of about £10 a year to make sure that companies are financially resilient. That isn't to, to, to benefit shareholders, that is to make sure that customers don't face much bigger costs if companies fail. £10 a year doesn't sound like a lot, but it raises the question, why are consumers being made to pay to secure the futures of private companies? Surely, surely the point of a market is that firms should fail when they don't plan ahead. What does it say, Mike, about the limits of a privatised energy system where the only option is to make consumers pay to ensure the survival of private firms? The system simply isn't fit for service. Look, at every stage of the energy system at the moment, whether it's the transmission, the generation, the supply, the distribution of energy, at every single stage, what the governments are doing is, is prioritising shareholders rather than cutting our bills. And they're really missing an open goal here because... You know, there, there is a real high level of public support or public ownership of energy. And it would make our lives better and make our lives more prosperous. You know, the TUC estimate that, you know, each household in Britain w- w- could earn up to you know, £4,400 if, if we had a nationalised energy service. So it really would make our lives better. And the profits we, we generate, the excess profits we generate from this company can be used to insulate our homes maybe and to bring our bills down. So I don't think the current system is fit for purpose. There is a great support for, you know, nationalising energy. So the government needs to get on with it. They, they won't because they don't really care about our prosperity, but it's a real clear indication this current system isn't working and, and, and nationalising this service would, would help all of our lives. Let's move on to our next story. A scandal from Down Under is now threatening the global business of one of the biggest consulting firms in the world. You might have heard of the Big Four, a term used to describe the four largest companies providing financial advisory services to massive corporations and governments all over the globe. PricewaterhouseCoopers, aka PwC, is one of these Big Four. But it's become embroiled in a tax leak scandal that is shining a spotlight on the vague and shadowy business of consulting. An expose by the Australian Financial Review earlier this year revealed that in 2015, a PwC partner called Peter Collins was helping the government design confidential new multinational tax laws. Collins proceeded to leak details of these tax laws to PwC colleagues so they could monetize the information, aka provide consulting to other clients on how to get around or minimize their impact. And these clients were not just Australian companies. The Guardian explains here. Collins provided information about multiple tax initiatives, meeting agendas, expected timings and government thinking, as well as a confidential copy of an OECD draft paper on, quote, mandatory disclosure of tax planning schemes, which outlined possible measures to reduce tax avoidance globally. PwC partners then formed a, quote, global team that would consider how this information could be used for commercial gain around the globe, but particularly in the United States. Email chains reveal PwC partners began working on, quote, our first North America project and used the information to give 14 US companies, primarily in the tech sector, a head start on compliance with Australia's new laws. Days after the laws were introduced in January 2016, PwC partners praised the work of Collins and the competitive advantage he'd given the firm, given a, quote, a significant number of these clients were not PwC Australia clients. Quote, we were aggressive in telling these relationships they needed to act early, heavily helped by the accuracy of the intelligence that Peter Collins was able to supply us and our analysis of the politics, one executive wrote. 
The US project generated about $2.5 million in revenue and relied on collaboration from PwC staff in Singapore, the Netherlands, and the US. Separately, senior UK partners commented on the confidential information and provided input. PwC Australia's CEO stepped down at the beginning of May, and now international PwC executives are in the middle of ongoing Australian Senate committee grillings as the fallout continues. On Wednesday, the Australian government confirmed that it had referred the scandal to the federal police for further investigation. You might be wondering, well, why does what happens in a different time zone matter here? To explain, we've got on the line Rosie Collington, co-author of The Big Con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments, and warps our economies. Rosie, straight off the bat, why is this PwC Australia scandal relevant to the UK? Great question. So PwC is a global company. It operates in pretty much every country in the world, including in secrecy jurisdictions, also known as tax havens. And the UK is one of uh, the biggest markets for for PwC and for the consulting industry more widely. Um, So the UK market is big for PwC. Um, uh, In the UK in 2022, around five billion pounds of revenue was earned from services across tax advisory consulting and audit uh, and audit um uk government spending on consultancies is also pretty massive so pwc is one of four accounting consultancies we also look at in the book and the research that i've done with mariana mazzucato we also look at the big three quote-unquote strategy consulting companies, so that's McKinsey, Bain & Company, and Boston Consulting Group. Um, The kind of work they do in in government is hugely um, uh, uh, diverse, and we can talk a bit about that. But like Australia, the UK government has also seen a huge increase in recent decades in spending and the kind of influence and involvement of these firms in policymaking and implementation. So it's hugely relevant. Tell me a bit about that, Rosie. When we say, you know, the UK government is working with PwC, What do we mean? What are they giving them these millions of pounds for? Another great question. Um, It's something that we, you know, have really tried to dig into because actually one of the biggest issues with the ways that governments are working with these companies is that we as kind of citizens and often people working within the departments themselves have very little understanding or knowledge about what these relationships involve. Um, but again, they're various. They can, they can be contracted. These companies can be contracted, for example, to provide advice on um, uh, on particular policy areas, they can be contracted to help manage um, contracts, um, uh, 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 to help manage the subcontracting, the outsourcing of contracts. Um, we know that we have had a similar case in the UK to what has recently been unearthed in Australia. Um, so in 2013, a public accounts committee inquiry found that all four of the big Four firms had seconded people to work in the UK Treasury to help develop legislation on transfer pricing, which is tax legislation related to uh, secrecy jurisdictions or or tax havens. Um, And there were some huge issues that this inquiry unearthed, um, including that in a kind of similar vein to, to the Australian case that's now developing. Um, that the companies had promoted the fact and marketed the fact that they had been developing this legislation um, two companies that they were hoping would then go on to be their, their clients. Is it kind of conflict of interest? Or is it a conflict of interest that we're seeing here? These conflicts of interest that you've, you've outlined here and the ones we're seeing in Australia, is that just par for course of these consulting firms? Is it a bit like the revolving doors we also talk about when we discuss, you know, the UK government and the media, for example? 
Unfortunately, it is. You know, as I've just said, we don't have all the information that we should have about the ways that governments are working with these companies, including the UK government, um, or indeed who the clients are that these companies are working for. But we do know that the kind of sectors that they are, that are most, the most lucrative groups of clients for them are ones that governments and citizens and democratically elected representatives are often trying to regulate and develop laws to help protect the kind of interests of citizens. Um, so to give you another case of a really clear example of conflict of interest, um, also in Australia, um, in 2021, the Australian government contracted McKinsey to help develop its national net zero uh, strategy, um, which was full of holes. Climate analysts were immediately like, this doesn't make sense. It didn't even get to net zero by 2050. It got to kind of 80% of the way to net zero. Um, and very quickly, commentators started picking up on the fact that McKinsey, uh, which had been given a six million pound contract, six, sorry, six million Australian dollar contract to, to do the analysis underpinning this strategy, um, had also advised 43 of the 100 biggest polluters. Um, and you know, this, this, of course, for those citizens um, and, and other people looking at this, begged the question, could these clients, could these other interests have been a reason perhaps why McKinsey um, did not develop a, a, a kind of thorough or very good rapport or, or indeed was just a reason why the government had contracted them in the first place? And who are the people making up the workforce of the likes of the big four? Because I know what I imagine when I think of an EY consultant or a Deloitte consultant, but I'm interested to know if that matches up with the research that you've done. Who is getting to advise the government on policy and subcontracts and all of that? Where are their interests? This varies immensely. A lot of graduates, you know, you're probably thinking of people you know, maybe went to uni with. Um, these are some massive recruiters, right? So lots of universities or lots of graduates from universities in the UK will go on to have their first job, their first graduate job, or perhaps they will have done a summer internship with one of these companies. And the kinds of promises that these companies make to them um, actually are, are often, you know, very, very nice things, very good things that people might want out of a job. So you know, they promise them you will be at the forefront of the green transition. We'll be able to support your learning. We'll be able to support your development. You'll be able to have an impact in the world. And on top of this, hey, guess what? We'll pay you enough to be able to pay rent in London or perhaps save up for a mortgage. Um, we do know that many young people who go into work for consultancies um, or, or, or just many people who have experienced life as a consultant become disillusioned with it. And that's certainly something we found from interviews. The Financial Times has recently done a piece on this. Um, and part of the reason for that is because they recognize that these kind of young, inexperienced, often graduates or people who haven't had many years of, you know, working in these areas that they're kind of contracted to work in as experts or as a source of capacity, they don't have the expertise and experience and, and they feel like, you know, that they're not necessarily adding anything um, of kind of social value or, or perhaps economic value um, in, in what they're doing. Let's move on to our next story. Former President Donald Trump announced his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination last year. And so far, Trump has led in the polls by miles and looks all but guaranteed to take the nomination come August. But for hard-right Republicans who don't enjoy Trump's drama or pronunciation of Lenin, however, a single hope remained. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's long been expected to throw his hat in the ring, and on Wednesday evening, DeSantis did just that. Or at least, he tried. 
It all began when Twitter cowboy Elon Musk said he would be conducting a Twitter space with DeSantis. And if you don't know what a Twitter space is, well done. It's basically an audio chat room where users can listen into conversations between speakers. And it's the medium that DeSantis chose to launch his presidential bid by way of a conversation with Musk, chaired by tech mogul David Sachs. Nightmare blunt rotation. But it didn't really go to plan. First, there was eight and a half minutes of awkward silence, and then this. All right. Uh, good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, everyone, depending on wherever in the world you're joining us from. I'm broadcasting live from David from Twitter headquarters. It's David Sachs here. Uh, Elon is sitting next to me. And we, want, and we want to welcome you to this historic Twitter Spaces event, and more broadly, a first in the history of social media. Uh, tonight, I'm pleased to introduce two individuals who've done more to loosen the Insert 30 more seconds of excruciating silence here, then this. All right, sorry about that. We, we've we got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. Um, all right, I'd like to just introduce the the, uh, the folks in, in the room here. So it's safe to say we wouldn't be making history without the man sitting next to me, Elon Musk, his decision to purchase this platform last year to restore to its original mission as a beacon for free speech, and even to expose Twitter's past complicity with a government censorship regime, might have surprised many, but not those of us who've known and worked with Elon for nearly a quarter century. His commitment to freedom, commitment to freedom and his willingness to put his money where his mouth is, upset the narrative, upset the narrative control, control imposed on us by our government. That echoing? It's because Musk, who is sitting next to Sachs, keeps switching his mic on. These are two tech billionaire millionaires, by the way, and they don't know how to use Twitter, which Musk owns. Now, around then, DeSantis dropped out of the space. David Sachs, though, just carried on talking until he was interrupted by another 90 seconds of dead air. And after that, there was this. All right. Well, it's certainly uh, an, an incredible honor to uh, have Governor DeSantis uh, make this uh, stark announcement. That went on for a while before DeSantis's launch picked up again. A joke. <laughs> All right, I'd like to welcome uh, Governor DeSantis uh, for this uh, historic. We're just trying, to, just trying to get it going because it's there's so many people. That's unfortunate. Right, I'd like to never seen this before. Welcome, uh, so. Governor DeSantis uh, for this uh, historic. We're just trying, just trying to get it going because it's. So many people. <laughs> oh, that painful techno drama dragged on for a full half hour. And finally, DeSantis was able to lay out his stall, saying this I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes and we feel it in our bones. Our southern borders collapse, drugs are pouring into the country. Our cities are being hollowed out by spiking crime. The federal government's making it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. And our president, well, he lacks vigor, flounders in the face of our nation's challenges, and he takes his cues from the woke mob. Really original stuff then. I think we'll all agree, well worth the wait. So who is Ron DeSantis? 
The 44-year-old was elected governor of Florida in 2018 in a landslide victory after running on promises of small government and low taxes. Once supported by Trump, who claims uh, the recognition for his victory, he came to national attention for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. He loosened lockdowns early, despite cases rising nationally, and he fought a long court battle to stop public schools from imposing masks on students. Since then, he's banned the teaching of critical race theory in schools, and he's also tried to outlaw conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity between students and teachers. Known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, it brought him into dispute with mega corporation Disney, who campaigned against it. That led to DeSantis cancelling the special independent status of the Florida district where Disney World is built and threatening to build a prison next door to it. Disney is the biggest employer in Florida, just to know. He's also signed into law a block on abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy, which is currently under appeal. It seems like Ron DeSantis is now a figure of fun and faces an uphill battle to be taken seriously as a Trump challenger. Mike, you're a politics lecturer. How easy is it for for political figures to overcome the stench of loser once it's attached to them? It's very difficult, especially when you're doing a bad job. And and DeSantis is doing a terrible job as the governor of Florida at the moment. So when it comes to healthcare, you know, Florida runs quite lowly when it comes to states across the US. So he's doing a terrible job. And actually, he's fighting this really odd woke battle of, you know, these woke people are taking over our country. And again, it's like the conservatives, you know, trying to do it in the UK. This is popular amongst a really small base of voters. And actually, this kind of base of voters that's popular amongst is, is shrinking. So I don't think for, for DeSantis, he has what it takes to, to mount a political recovery because what that would require is, you know, a rebranding of some sort. But I think he's going to, you know, hammer the woke war and, and, and you know, ramble on about all of these woke issues that apparently are police in America. And that will be a strategy until he kind of plays into the oblivion, I imagine. I think it's really interesting when you look at DeSantis, he did seem like a genuine challenger for a while. And then Trump made that visit to East Palestine when the train derailed and suddenly his polls shot up. And in America, you really see when it comes to presidential campaigns, the difference between someone who's a people person like Donald Trump and somebody who hasn't got the charisma and has been repeatedly portrayed as awkward. There's all these, you know, footage of DeSantis laughing at the wrong moment or having these strange abrasive interactions with the general public. And despite his popularity in Florida, it's just not translating when it comes up against, sadly, the reality TV power of someone like Donald Trump. I mean, really a rock and a hard place, but that Twitter launch, a misstep. It reminds me of the uh, David Miliband and the banana, which killed his political career. Let's move on from the stench of loser to (laughs) another loser. We normally hear about Labour removing the whip. They've taken it from Jeremy Corbyn, of course. Dan Abbott recently had it suspended and other left-wing MPs have to watch their step for fear of having it stripped from them too. But now we can bring you some news of Keir Starmer's remarkable generosity because he's actually restored the whip to an MP. A Blairite, of course, This is Neil Coyle, the MP for Bermondsey and Old Southwark in South London. And in February last year, Coyle was suspended from the party while undergoing two parliamentary investigations. The first was about allegations that he had loudly and drunkenly abused a parliamentary aide in the strangest bar of the House of Commons. And the second was for making racist remarks to a journalist from a British-Chinese background in the same bar. 
Henry Dyer, who was targeted by Coyle, reported this in Business Insider last year. Coyle approached the small group I was in. He did not acknowledge my presence at the previous evening and spoke on several topics, including his claim that his constituency has the most restaurants with Michelin stars. The topic eventually moved to Barry Gardner, the Labour MP who had received funding from a suspected Chinese spy. Coyle made a remark that suggesting Gardner was being paid by Fu Manchu, a comment that struck me as not right at the time, given it had been so well reported who had been given Gardner money and there was no need to refer to a 20th century trope of a Chinese supervillain. I gently pushed back at Coyle about this. He asked me if it was just the case that I was being oversensitive before saying that he would apologise if he had said something bad and it wasn't if it wasn't just me being insensitive, which I believe was insincere, insincere. He then said he had relatives of Chinese descent. I responded by saying that I am British Chinese, to which Coyle responded that he could tell, quote, from how you look, you look like you've been giving renmi rinbi, the Chinese currency, to Barry Gardner. Later that evening, as a group of us were leaving the bar, the others turned and waved goodbye to other journalists. I also turned and saw Coyle. Keen to diffuse the tension from earlier, I waved goodbye to him, to which he responded by putting two fingers up to me. In March, the investigations concluded. The Guardian reports this. In the first case, Coyle was found to have engaged in foul-mouthed and drunken abuse towards a junior parliamentary assistant employed by another MP. The independent expert panel, which recommended a sanction of two-day suspension and an apology in Parliament, said this was shocking and intimidating for any complainant, particularly a junior member of staff. The commissioner found that Coyle had breached Parliament's harassment policy in the second case, which the MP then appealed against. His appeal was rejected by the independent expert panel, which said, central to this case are comments made by the respondent which were experienced by the complainant as, quote, racist and abusive conduct. The comments were unacceptable and constituent harassment as they had the effect of violating the complainant's dignity and created an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment. The racist nature of the comments is a serious aggravating factor in this case. The report said Coyle had made such comments while under the influence of an excessive amount of alcohol, which, while undoubtedly contributing to his behaviour, in no way excuses it as the respondent rightly accepts. Nonetheless, since the incident, the respondent has taken considerable steps to ensure no repetition of the behaviour, including informing us that he had stopped drinking alcohol, it said. The panel recommended he be suspended from the House of Commons for three days and that he make an apology to Parliament. So, for racially abusing a journalist and drunkenly harassing a staffer, Coyle faced just five-day suspension, and now the Labour Party have welcomed him back into the fold. Whatever happened to Keir Starmer's zero-tolerance policy for racism? Maybe he only meant some racisms. I think Momentum had a particularly good comment on this case, saying this. It is shocking and disgusting to see Labour readmit someone found to have engaged in racial and sexual harassment. The NEC must immediately move to Barney or Coyle from standing as a Labour candidate at the next election. The shameful act exposes a system which is not fit for purpose. When loyalists can engage in such abhorrent behaviour and be punished with nothing more than a slap on the wrist, the Starmer leadership's claims to be independent and robust disciplinary processes lie in tatters. It's time to end this dangerous, politicised abuse of the Labour whip and enact a truly independent process. 
Momentum there refers to a sexual harassment complaint. In 2019, the Labour Party found that Coyle had sexually harassed a young woman at the party conference. The consequences? A formal warning that sat on his file for a year. Mike, when politicians like Neil Coyle, who have repeated incidents, complaints against them, are allowed to continue representing constituencies, what sort of message does that send to the general public? It sends a very bad message, and I think this is another example of why we can't take Keir Starmer on his word. Just earlier this year, as you mentioned, Moya, he said Labour are going to take a zero-tolerance approach to racism of any kind. Yet here we are, a couple of months down the line, and Neil Coyle has been reinstated. This suggests to me that within the Labour Party, some MPs are held to a different standard to others, and that's simply unacceptable. You know, if you're going to take a zero-tolerance post-racism, that should be applied to all MPs fairly. So when MPs violate, you know, or, or say racist things, they should all receive the same punishments as a result of that. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a process of favouritism, which seems to be the case in a Labour Party. And I think constituents deserve better, frankly. The constituents don't deserve to be represented by an MP who has a history of you know, sexual abuse and, and racism. You know, our, our, our citizens in this country want to be represented by the very best politicians who have their best interests at heart. And can we really say Neil Cole has the best interests of his constituents at heart, given some of the things he's been involved in? It's difficult to say that. So actually, this says a lot about Labour under Keir Starmer and also the idea that there are some MPs held to different standards to others. It's very demoralising. Um, thank you so much, Mike, for joining me tonight and sharing your thoughts. It's been a pleasure. Uh, hope to come on again with you soon, Moya. <laughs> a pleasure pleasure talking to you not sure the stories have been that pleasurable and thank you everyone for tuning in come back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream you have been watching Navara Media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media go to navaramedia.com support <laughs>